Good morning. Good morning. Good to be back in our own Sunday school class. The summer study was wonderful. It'd be even more wonderful to be back in here together studying 1 Corinthians. We've uh, heard the officer records and the prayer requests. Uh, I want to begin by, first of all, doing a review of the introduction that I did about two weeks ago in the summer Sunday school class, in the adult Sunday school. Very brief, but if you're like me, I can't remember what somebody said two hours ago, much less two weeks ago. So what's the rationale for Paul writing this book? And we'll look at it very quickly. So we'll have a review of the preview, and then we'll read the scripture, and we'll talk about your summary that you, I'm sure, wrote uh, for summarizing the first three verses. And then we have three very important discussion questions that I gave to you. These are important because they're words that Paul deliberately uses in this introduction. And they are targeted words. They have to do with the subject matter of what Paul is going to take up with the problems that existed in Corinth. And then we'll look at an outline of the first three verses and then we'll review those three verses together. So let's begin by looking at the review. We began, you'll remember, by looking at the timeline to, to set when Corinth was founded and when Paul wrote the book to the Corinthians. Paul was converted in somewhere around 33, 34. He actually planted the church in Corinth somewhere between 48 and 51 AD, middle of the century. He moves on from there to Ephesus and probably is writing this from Ephesus, and that occurs somewhere between 53 and 55. There are a number of reasons why we will find 1 Corinthians interesting and helpful and profitable for us to study. Uh, it will be instructive for us to see how Paul handles major problems in a Christian manner. It will be greatly edifying for us to see the theology that Paul sets forth there that often grows out of the problems that he's addressing. There is nowhere in the New Testament where the resurrection is set forth more clearly than in 1 Corinthians, and we'll look closely at that. And then one of the themes that we'll see throughout this study is that Corinth is a mirror of our society and the church today. And we'll see that occurring again and again. This sounds familiar. This situation that exists in Corinth sounds like the situation that exists right now in, in our culture and in the fact that that culture is moving into the church. And oftentimes what we see is the culture is being invited into the church deliberately. And we find that in Corinth, we find that here too. Here's what Gordon Fee had to say about it. The cosmopolitan character of the city and church, the strident individualism that emerges in so many of their behavioral aberrations, the arrogance that attends their understanding of being people of the spirit, the accommodation of the gospel to the surrounding culture in all too many ways, these and some other features of the Corinthian church are but mirrors held up before the church of today. 
Now, you'll remember we said that there were three unique characteristics of Corinth that gave rise to the problems. These three unique situations were good things in and of themselves. They wound up being bad things in the way that Corinthians responded to them and handled the situations that existed there. The first unique situation was geographical. Uh, you'll notice there we have Greece in the lower left-hand quadrant of the map. The northern part of Greece is in the mainland, and then the southern part of Greece is in that peninsula. It's labeled a KI here, but that's the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And it's connected to the mainland by that very narrow little neck of land, about four or five miles wide at its narrowest. And if you think about it, if you're traveling anywhere north-south, that serves as a funnel. All the travelers funnel together and they have to cross that peninsula to get either north or south. Likewise, if you're traveling by ship, east or west, you don't want to travel around the southern tip of the Peloponnesus. Uh, that's very dangerous. Wind and currents are terrible. People die trying to do that. Plus, it simply takes longer. It's far easier to travel down that gulf there, dock on this side of the isthmus, port your goods over to the other side, put them on another ship, and sail away. But again, you have to cross that isthmus in order to do that. One of the interesting things we learned two weeks ago was if you did not have a terribly large ship, you could actually load the entire ship onto a wheeled contraption and roll it across the peninsula for a small fee, which the Corinthians gladly accepted from you for doing that. So either way, you cross that peninsula or, or that isthmus. And what's sitting right there at the southern tip of the isthmus is Corinth. And so all of this traffic flows through Corinth. And we can imagine that the actual population of Corinth at any one given time is much larger than the native population, those who actually live there. And, and this brought people in from all over the Roman Empire, people of different nations, different languages, different religions, different philosophies. And so we had this, this cosmopolitan mix occurring in Corinth. So geographical uniqueness. That led to economic, uh, being unique economically, because you not only have the travelers, the sailors, the traders, you also have tourists, because Corinth was home to the Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympics in popularity. People came from all over the Roman Empire again to attend those games. So we had this, uh, this huge influx of people at any given time. Business people, of course, noticed that. And they saw the people as customers, and so they flocked to Corinth also uh, to make money off of the situation. It attracted entrepreneurs. And the Corinthians gladly accepted all of the tolls and fees and rents and, and commerce that took place because of all this great mix of people. Anthony Thistleton put it this way, Corinth was a deeply competitive, self-sufficient, and entrepreneurial culture marked by ambitions to succeed. 
Today we might call that consumerism. And that sounds very familiar to the situation that we have here today. The third unique situation was culturally. You'll remember that Corinth was destroyed and then rebuilt about a hundred years later by Julius Caesar as a home for the soldiers of his Roman legions. So it was founded as essentially, uh, founded the second time, essentially as a Roman city. So it has very much a Roman character to it, but eventually the Greeks moved back. So now again, you have this mix of Roman culture and Greek culture. It produces an energetic business culture where quick success and quick failure is a part of the mindset. Competition, patronage, consumerism, multiform layers and levels of success were part of the air breathed by citizens of Corinth. A humiliated, crucified Christ was an affront to people who loved winners. Sounds familiar again, doesn't it? Morris says Corinth was important, intellectually alert, materially, <clears throat> materially prosperous, but morally corrupt. Just as the trees on the shoreline are reflected in the waters of the lake, Corinth then is a reflection back to us of our own culture and the situation of the evangelical church. Uh, today. We gain huge insights into that as we study 1 Corinthians. S to summarize it, 1st century Corinthian aberrations are a mirror before the 21st century church. The solution for both is Christ, the wisdom and power of God. And we will see that in evidence as we make our way through 1st Corinthians. So let's read those first three verses um, and then we'll begin to, to work our way through our discussion questions and our summary. Let's read together, or, or let me read for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord's Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these three verses are far, far more important for us to understand than they may at first appear. What we're seeing here is ordinary, everyday, traditional, mundane structure of a letter written in the first century. It began with the name of the writer to whomever they were writing to, and then a greeting followed by usually a thanksgiving. So it might be John to Peter, greetings. I thank the gods for your good health, something like that. That's what we see here, except Paul has done two very remarkable things to it. He has Christianized it, and he has included 
words that I gave to you, a couple of them, to look up and, and sort of uh, to see what they actually mean within a biblical context that we'll talk about in just a moment. He used Christian words here. Now, that had to get the Corinthians' attention because they recognized the form of it, but it has much more in it than they would expect in a letter. And, and not only has he Christianized this, but it is targeted Christianity that he has placed in here. The things that he addresses that are Christian are the very things that he's going to be addressing that are problems to the Corinthian church. And we'll see how those, how those play out. So two things, he Christianizes that which was mundane and makes it extremely important. And then he targets it toward the Corinthians. And they would have picked up on this. And they would have recognized, I think, that Paul is being a little bit subtle here and beginning to address the problems without saying, you dirty, rotten Corinthians. But he introduces it slowly. And, uh, and we'll see how that works in just a moment. Now, I ask you to spend some time thinking about a summer. And we'll do this every week. This is the easiest that you will have all year because it's just three verses. So you probably shouldn't have four sentences in your, in your summary. Maybe two or three sentences would do. But the purpose of this is to help us think about what the passage means. Uh, to do more than just read through it, but think about it. And then try to put it into your own words what it means using the, the formula the Apostle Paul says that and then finish that out in your own words that describes it. So who would like to go first and give us your summary of the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians? What, what did I say? First three chapters. No, first three verses. Uh, Brian. Summary is remember who you are. Remember who you are. Good. That's a major point that he's making here. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But remember who you are. You're not special. You're in this together with lots of people from around the world, everyone, everywhere who calls upon the name of Christ. Good. Uh, Edward? Yeah, uh, so since there was an introduction, I have uh, the Apostle Paul says that he is called by the will of God to reach out to those in Corinth that call upon the name of Jesus Christ. Okay, very good. We've got that, uh, that, that broader church concept there in that introduction. So good. Yes? Paul was writing not alone, but with Sophocles. Uh, who is that? Uh, uh, he is the chief ruler of the synagogue. Right. Right. I don't know who he is. And he had defended Paul back when Paul was under attack from the Jews. As a model. So that was interesting. And uh, he's basically <coughs> saying to them, I am an apostle. He's claiming that. Is that true? That's an unusual claim for somebody who did, never met Jesus in life. So that, that's interesting. And he's right, of course writing into the church. And well, you're going to ask the question, what is the church? That raises an interesting question. Have we even defined that? Mm -hmm. uh, and then he wishes them grace and peace. Okay. Okay, very good. Now Paul did see Christ. 
he didn't see it at the time of Christ's earthly ministry, but he saw him when, when Christ appeared to him. And his theology, his knowledge of Christianity came from being taught by Christ. And he makes that point. If you, if you looked up those verses I gave you on the apostle, uh, you would have seen that. But, uh, and Sosthenes, that's very interesting. Uh, Sosthenes was the ruler, as you said in Corinth, who was beaten uh, before the council when Paul was there. He was the uh, head of the, of the Jewish synagogue. Now, we don't know for certain that this is the, the same Sosthenes, but it's not qualified. His name is just thrown out there in this letter to the Corinthians. So I think it's highly likely that it's the same person. He's now in Ephesus with Paul. Uh, so wonderful that we can see there uh, the grace of God at work uh, very deliberately and, and very obviously uh, in the life of a, uh, a member of that early church. Anybody else want to read their summary to us? Okay, well, let me give you my summary. Paul, the writer, identifies himself as an apostle of Christ commissioned by God, along with his companion, Sosthenes. He is writing to the assembly of believers in Corinth who have also been commissioned and set apart by God for holiness and service to Christ, as are all believers everywhere who likewise call on the Lord. He wishes upon them God's continued gracious dealings and spiritual prosperity that come from both God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll go through that, uh, those three verses in just a minute. But let's look at the discussion questions. The first question you remember I gave you is, what is the meaning of the word apostle as it is used in the New Testament? And I gave you the dictionary meaning, which is just an emissary, uh, someone who's sent out with a message. Uh, they're, they're sent on a task. And that word was known to the people of the first century. They knew what apostle meant. But Paul Christianizes also that word. And it's used with a great deal of qualification in the New Testament. It has a much greater and much deeper meaning as it's used in Scripture. So if you looked at that uh, rather long list of, of verses, but they're easy to look up because most of them are the introduction to successive verses of Paul's writings, then you see some qualifying there that defines for us what an apostle, as used in the New Testament, what does that word mean? So who wants to give us theirs? Yes. A servant. He is a servant of Christ. He was called specifically for that purpose. Good. What else did you find? Edward. Yeah, several different commandments. Uh, in other words, it was uh, called by God, appointed by God, commanded of God. Yes, all of those, all of those things uh, give rise to the idea that God is the one behind the apostleship of Paul and the other apostles. Uh, God is the one who called them. He appointed them. It was by His will that that was done. Paul did not appoint himself. He's not a self-ordained apostle. He was appointed by God 
for this task. Uh, anyone else have any qualifiers they found in looking up those verses? Yes. Um, ambassador. Ambassador, ambassador is an ambassador of Christ. Yes, very good. Special revelation. I'm sorry? Yeah, special revelation. Uh, yeah, special revelation. Uh, his insight, he said, I think he says, came because it was a revelation by God to him. And I believe he connects that to all the other apostles as well. That's why they have the insight and the knowledge they have to write the books of the New Testament. His, uh, he performed supernatural works that confirmed his position. Yes, the, the works that confirmed his ministry, the miracles, the, uh, the, the powerful works that were performed to confirm to people his apostleship. Let me show you, I just I jotted down all of these from looking at those verses. He was called, he was set apart, uh, he received his apostleship, he didn't do it on his own. Uh, he received grace to bring about the obedience of faith. It was by the will of God that he was an apostle. He has seen Jesus. He makes a point out of that. Uh, God appointed all of the apostles and the prophets. We'll see this occurring again, that Paul makes a connection between apostles, New Testament office, and the prophets, the Old Testament office, and he equates them, doesn't he? And we'll see that occurring again. Uh, Jesus appeared to all the apostles, including Paul. The signs of a true apostle are signs, wonders, mighty works. His apostleship came not from men, but through Jesus and God. Uh, interesting here that he also equates Jesus and God. Uh, here's an indication of the deity of Christ. He's equal with God. His apostleship came from Christ as well as from God. God worked through him. Uh, God established the foundation of apostles and prophets to uphold the, the household of faith. He received insight into the mystery of Christ revealed to him. Uh, God gave the apostles and the prophets. Again, that connection between Old and New Testament. And he was an apostle by the command of God. So this is a, this is the divine working in Corinth and in every place that Paul was, uh, an apostleship that was not one that he took up on his own, but it was given to him by God. So God is at work here. Second discussion question, what's the church? And I didn't give you a lot of verses, we could have done that, but right there in that one verse, verse two, is a, uh, is a good qualification of what the church means in the New Testament. Now the, the Corinthians were, were very familiar with that word. Uh, the, the first century people were familiar with the word uh, ecclesia, uh, which we translate church. But to them it meant an assembly, an assembly of people who had a well-defined membership, usually applying to the citizens of, of a city perhaps, who were meeting in something close to a town hall. So that was an assembly, that was an ecclesia. So it had that meaning. Paul uses it much differently. The New Testament everywhere uses it much differently. 
So looking just at verse two, what did you find that that identifies this as a uniquely Christian term? An assembly, yes, but a Christian assembly. Yes, right. I like the, the phrase, all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, it's uh, th this is the universal church. This is all people everywhere who are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're members of that church. The body of Christ. The body of Christ. Uh, this is the body of Christ. Uh, it's identified in several places in the New Testament in that regard. Yes. Well, let me give you uh, what I see there. Uh, this is the church of God in Corinth. This, this again is God at work here in this. Uh, it's to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Uh, those who have been uh, and that next word too, they're very closely akin, called to be saints. Saints and sanctified are from the same root word in the Greek just as they are in, in English. Uh, sanctified, both of them have this idea of being set apart for something. Uh, they are set, set aside, set apart to be holy. They are set, set aside to be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice that it is those who are sanctified already who are now called to be saints. That is to, uh, to be holy and to be identified as members of this assembly of God, the church of God. It is together with all of those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they have one common Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a unity in the church of God. Quite a bit different than just an assembly of people with a well-defined membership, is it? Uh, it? It takes on a specific meaning and a very important meaning in the New Testament. Third discussion question. What relationship between God and Christ is implied by the greeting in verse 3? Reading in verse 3, uh, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it imply about the relationship between Jesus and God? Equality. Equality. This grace and peace is coming from both God and Christ. The grace here, as we'll see in a moment, is, uh, is, is something that only God can give. It's the free gift of of salvation and all the benefits of salvation. Peace is also something that only God can give because this is hearkening back to the Old Testament. Shalom, peace. That's the peace that God gives. It's the peace of the soul and the prosperity of the soul that's indicated there. So, grace and peace come from God, but here they're coming from God and Christ. So Christ is implied here strongly to be God, and when you find that occurring over and over again, it's pretty strong indication of the deity of Christ. Gordon Fee says, the combination of Father and Son in such text as these must not be overlooked. Texts such as this one make it clear that in Paul's mind, the Son is truly God 
and works in cooperation with the Father in the redemption of God's people. Well, here's the outline. Three points. And I title this, these, these three verses, as the sovereign acts of God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians. And I think one of the things that Paul is trying to convey here in this introduction to his letter to the Corinthians is that God is the one who is acting. Uh, it's not me writing to you. I would never deign to pick up a whatever they wrote with, uh, a stylus or, or whatever. I would never deign to do that. God is the one who commissioned me to do that. I can't do anything else but that because God has, has given that to me to do. And so it's God at work here. So we see the Apostle Christ called by God. We see the Church of God sanctified in Christ. And then we see the greeting of Paul from both God and Christ. So let's look at each of those points. Verse 1 says, Paul called by the will of God to be an Apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. So here's the Apostle of Christ and we've seen the, the, the act of God that is involved in the use of the word apostle. It's God's doing. God is the one who established and commanded and called the apostles. And he called Paul. Uh, and he's an apostle of Christ. He's serving Christ. So he's called by the will of God and he's in service to Christ Jesus. Now this is important because Paul makes a really big point of his apostleship, especially later on in the book, starting around about chapter 9. He repeatedly calls attention to the fact that he is an apostle. The usual interpretation of that that I see is that Paul is establishing his authority as an apostle. And he's emphasizing that authority. That's true. But more than that, the authority is not coming from Paul. The authority is coming from God and from Christ. And, and that's the authority. And that's what Paul is emphasizing to the Corinthians. This is not me giving this message. This is, this is God doing it. Um, one of the commentators I read, and I can't remember who, said that the apostles were transparent. When they spoke or wrote, you didn't see the apostle. You didn't hear the apostle. You didn't read the words of the apostle. He's transparent. It's God's word and God's writing. And that's what we're seeing. So the apostle disappears. Any of you keep aquariums and you know where glass fish is? Ever seen a glass fish? Uh, it's strange because with the right lighting, you see one swimming along. It's, it's strange because all you see are eyes and intestines. And they're just floating along in the water there. That fish is transparent. You can see right through it as he goes along. And when, when he turns and gets in the, in the light, just right now you can see his body. Well, apostles are like that. They're transparent. <clears throat> They're there, you can see them as human beings, but when they speak and write with authority of God, you see God. 
and they remain transparent. Second point, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. This is the church of God sanctified in Christ. Now notice, as we've seen in our discussion of the word church, this is the church of God, the church that belongs to God, not just any old assembly of people. It has been set apart for holiness and for service to Christ. The word sanctified there, we usually take to mean uh, the result of having been declared to be holy by, by the act of God, gracious act of God in salvation. Uh, God, it's not our holiness, it's Christ's holiness that has been imputed to us. So there's no intrinsic change in us at the moment of salvation. That comes later as we go through the process of sanctification. But this instantaneous aspect of sanctification is when Christ, uh, when, when God saves us because of the work that Christ has done. And we are now sanctified. And this is perfect tense. These people have been sanctified. But now they have been called to be saints. And that word saint means to be holy. It's, it's someone who is holy. They are declared to be holy, but they are called to be holy, uh, to become holy. And that's the, the uh, progressive part of sanctification, as people become holy. But a saint, you know, if you're a believer in Christ, you're a saint. That's nothing, the Catholics make it a specialized, somebody who's performed miracles, somebody who's been extra good. In fact, the Catholic doctrine is they have to, they have to be uh, too good. They have to have some extra goodness. And that extra goodness even goes into the church treasury, uh, <laughs> a, a depository where, where you can go and, and make a withdrawal to get a, you know, if you need some extra goodness about you. That's foreign to the New Testament. It's not in there at all. Uh, these folks were saints, and by the way, that also tells us that even though they had these major problems, they were true believers. Uh, they were saints in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were set aside for service. And then they are identified with all believers in every place. One of the problems that we have seen before of the, of the Corinthians was they thought they were special because of those unique things that we looked at. They were prosperous. They were smart. They were making money. They were winners. So they're special. They get to do things their own way. And right from the very beginning here, Paul's going to address that very explicitly later. But right from the very beginning, he's laying the groundwork here. Uh, uh, you're not special. You're in this together with all believers everywhere who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the third point is his greeting itself. Now, in the standard letter of the first century, this would just simply be greetings. Hi, how you doing? That sort of thing. Paul has Christianized it to be grace, 
It's a slightly different word. The two words are related. Greeting and grace come from the same root word, but just an infinite difference in the meaning of those two things. This is the, uh, the grace of God. Uh, we sometimes call it, often call it free grace. That's an oxymoron because grace is free. Uh, in fact, if it's, if it's not free, it's not grace. can be. But, but we like to emphasize the fact because it's so misunderstood that it is free grace. And that's what's, what Paul is wishing upon them. The thing that results from God's blessing, of his gracious blessing of salvation and the benefits of salvation, the thing that results is peace. And this is not peace meaning the absence of conflict. Paul is referring back here to the Old Testament word peace, which is shalom, which means far more than just absence of conflict. It means peace of the soul. It means prosperity. Not just physically, but primarily spiritually. Spiritual prosperity. And he's wishing that, uh, that continued grace and peace upon the Corinthians. And those two things which can come only from God, he says here, are coming from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see God? He's beginning to set the stage here that God is in one who's doing this work in Corinth. God is the one who's behind my writing of this letter. It's not me. Do you see evidence of God's work in our situation here in this church? I do. I think this, this has been amazing the last few years. Have you seen how we've grown during COVID? Uh, God has blessed us even at a time when other churches were, were shrinking. So we see the grace uh, of God and the peace of God upon this church, but also individually. Can you discern God's working in your own life? Uh, because this, this greeting is, is a corporate greeting, yes, but it's an individual greeting as well. And for you and me, God works in our life. Uh, he gives us grace. He gives us that spiritual prosperity. And as we read the Word of God, and especially as we hear the Word of God preached in a corporate setting, along with this, with other believers, uh, as we pray every day, as we attend to the sacraments, we see the, uh, the new children baptized, that conveys grace to us. It reminds us uh, of a situation that exists in, in our own life. Likewise, with communion, we're being reminded of what Christ has done for us and grace is conveyed to us. So grace and peace, a corporate thing, yes. And, and we're grateful for God's working in our church, but it's individual. And if, if you can't see that, that God had worked in your own life, then you need to take advantage of the means of grace. That, the reading and the preaching of the Word of God, prayer and the sacraments. And that's how God works in, 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 in bestowing grace and this spiritual prosperity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this study this morning in your Word. We thank you for being with us. 
We thank you for leading us through this. And Father, I pray that we might all uh, diligently seek to find that, that spiritual prosperity by maintaining uh, the means of grace in each of our lives. Uh, we look forward to all that you can do for us in this church and in our lives, even in the difficult parts of life, to know that we have you working for us and bestowing grace and peace upon us. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.